Hey, and welcome to the Resound Church podcast. Whether it's your first or your 40th time tuning in, we're so glad you're here. And we pray that you get something powerful from today's sermon. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Mason. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, through November, uh, we're going through a little series called that we're calling Parables. So we're going to spend just a few moments now um, going through a parable that's found in, in the Word of God. We're just going to look at, in November, four of Jesus's 38 parables. So Jesus told 38 parables that are recorded in Scripture. I'm sure He would have told more, but 38 of them made it into Scripture. And we're just looking at four of them over the month of November. Last week, Britt uh, talked about the parable of the sower, uh, which is a pretty famous parable and challenged us on a few thoughts. I get to, um, I guess, unpack this morning one of Jesus's most famous parables, uh, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. They are three separate stories, but intertwined and all found in Luke chapter uh, 15. Now, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but I know when I first came to uh, church, I heard a lot of new words that I had no idea what they meant, and people kind of assumed that I knew, like sanctification and all that kind of stuff. But parables was one of those words for me, that someone was just like, oh yeah, it's a parable of Jesus. And I was like, what's a parable of Jesus? And so just in case there's some people out there like me, when I first came to church, a parable is simply just a story or an illustration that teachers would tell uh, to represent a moral or a spiritual point. And so parables weren't exclusive to Jesus, meaning that it wasn't like Jesus came up with the method of telling stories and illustrations to answer a question or to uh, prove a point or to show a spiritual or, or moral, uh, I guess, answer to situations and, and to circumstances. In fact, in the first century and before that, Uh, rabbis and Jewish teachers, that was their preferred method of teaching. And so their preferred method of teaching was that we will, instead of giving you the answers and just telling you the information, we will craft a story um, so that you can find the information yourself, which is actually quite genius, right? Because they were tapping into something that we now know to be true, that if you just give information to someone, um, that's great and they might take on the information and they might take it on and it might settle and it might be great. Or most likely what happens with all of us, it goes in one ear and out the other. But if you can give someone an illustration or a story that they have to take home, think about, meditate on, come identify who they are in the story and draw the lessons and the answers out of the story themselves, not only does that give them a better chance of retaining the answers and the teachings from the teacher, but it actually is more likely to produce an action in their life. Why? Because information doesn't always produce action, but revelation, meaning when you have come up to the, for, with, the, with the answer yourself and you have had a revelation of the answer, well, then it's yours to own and it often creates Uh, movement or an action in your life. So it really is quite genius that they would use parables and stories to bring about uh, points in Scripture. Now, in the Bible college, we teach mostly the students not to do a thing that we call eisegesis, which is to read your own biases into the script, but to actually understand 
what the original authors were writing and then in, and imply that to your life. But actually, when it comes to parables, we can do that a little bit because in Hebrew structures where they would tell the story, um, they wouldn't tell stories for content. They would tell stories for identification. So the best way that you could get uh, the answer or you were supposed to come to the answer through the parables was you were supposed to identify with one of the characters and then understand what that character should have done or should be doing or what that character actually did. And that's how you would bring about the lesson. And so when we go through the parables of Jesus, we should place ourselves in the story and think about it and meditate on it. And that's where the lesson comes from the story. Does that make sense? Hopefully, because if it doesn't, then we might as well go home now. But so that's what he's doing here. He's telling a story to answer a question or something that they were thinking about. And so in this story, which we'll get into in a moment, I think this morning um, there are about four takeaways for me um, that I got out of this parable that I just want to give to you to ponder this week, to think about this week, um, to let it then bring a revelation to you and let the Holy Spirit speak to you through the parable. To get to the first point, um, I actually need to just quickly establish um, an unspoken, uh, unwritten sometimes unconscious uh, system for determining worth that you and I have as mankind, which is this. We determine our worth off of what we do and what we have. And you might say, well, I don't really do that. I just determine everybody's worth something and it's amazing and it's great. And that is a great Christian answer to have and it's fine. But in reality, we determine worth off of what we have and what we do. In this time in the first century when Jesus was telling this story, they actually had classes. There was first class, second class, and the first class didn't mix with the next class, and the next class didn't mix with the next class, and the, the lower class didn't mix with the upper class. And there were actually classes through history. Now, for the most part, we have you know, grown a bit more sensitive to things, so we've gotten rid of the classes, except for when you travel on an aeroplane. Um, they're still first class and all that kind of stuff. But there are classes. We are conditioned as humanity to determine our worth off of what we do and what we have. Think about it. We have all in some way, one way or another, asked this question, am I worth something? Do I have value? Maybe not in those words and maybe not so consciously you've asked that question, but I think most of us at some point or another ask ourselves that question. Do I have worth? Do I have value? And so to answer that question, we all do what comes most natural to us, which is to look at the people around us and compare what we have and what we do to the people around us and somehow, in some weird, flawed way, structure our social status against other people to determine where we fit in life and what our worth and what our value is. And so when we ask that question, we kind of look at the people around us and go, well, I don't have as much as them and I don't do as much as them. So then maybe somehow makes us feel a certain way that we are in some way less than them. And then if we feel like we have more than someone or we do more than someone, that makes us feel a certain way as well. Even unconsciously makes us feel a certain way like, I do better than that. And you know the crazy thing is? It actually determines in life who we hang out with, 
who we turn our nose up at, like, look at this guy, thinks he's got everything, and who we actually look down on in life is depending on where you structure yourself, depending on what you have and what you do. It sounds flawed, and it is flawed, because, you know, even in, when we fly planes, we look at the people walking to first class, you know, first class priority booking, those people in the world, and we kind of think, look at these guys. Guys, man, why would you spend that much money on a ticket? That, like, that's just ridiculous. These people aren't smart with their money. They spend so much money on that ticket. That's just stupid. They're just showboating. It's fine. I'll be back here in cattle class with the rest of the peasants. Knowing full well, if you had the money, you would be up there in first class with every single one of them. You'd be walking past all the peasants. I mean, people with your champagne all the way to the front class. Like, look at these people down here. It smells back here. That's what it smells. It smells back here. And we all do it. We, all, we turn our noses up at those people, especially in Australia, because we've got tall poppy syndrome. So as soon as someone starts, it's like, look at this guy. Look, why would they spend that much money on a car? Um, probably because if you've ever been in an expensive car before, it's amazing. <laughs> That's why. But we look down. But then we also, uh, you know, if we have more than someone or whatever, we actually do unconsciously sometimes look down at those people. You know, you see someone just crazy, at the supermarket or whatever, and you're just kind of like, geez, get your act together. Like, stop screaming at your children in public. Like, you didn't just scream at your child, like, just before that. And we kind of play this weird game, right? And I say all that to say this, that these stories that we're about to go through actually make no sense when we view them through that lens. And in fact, the story actually picks up on that at the very end, on the very last story, we're introduced to a new character called the older brother and he represents perfectly the way, his attitude represents perfectly us and our value system, mankind's value system for determining worth. But as we go through these stories, we understand that God has a different value system for you and I. It's a different value system for you and I than the ones we place on ourselves. And so Luke chapter 15, uh, starting from verse one, it says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, Pharisees and the teachers of the law were just the religious right of the day. They were the priests and the pastors and all that of the day who thought they had it all together. They began to mutter amongst themselves, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so unintentionally, they are asking a question, right? What makes these people worth your time, Jesus? Here is Jesus who is gaining in his popularity, who is teachings of blowing people's mind and upsetting people. He comes from a good family. He's now a rabbi. He's now a teacher. So he should not associate with these people. He should not. It looks bad. Prostitutes, tax collectors, if nothing else, people start to question Jesus. Why are you hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors? Are you ripping people off? Are you doing things you shouldn't be doing? All that. And look, and they're basically asking the question, you, they're basically saying, you should not hang out with these people because you have more than them. You have more to live for than them. These people are the scum of the earth. And here you are. You should not be showing them that much value as to be seated at a table with them and sharing a meal with them. They're unconsciously asking a question. And I love it because Jesus has the best hearing in the world. Because you often see this in scripture. Nobody's asking a question. But then Jesus launches into a story. He just knows. People muttering in the background. Jesus turns and says, hey, well, let me tell you a story. 
Which is to say, let me tell you who you are and let me give you the answer to the question that you're not actually asking, but you are actually asking in your heart. He says, let me tell you a story. He says, pretend you are a shepherd. Any shepherds in the room? No, just shepherds of children, keeping them all together. A sheep would almost be easier, I think, sometimes. But when you say that in the country, there's always some people who put their hand up, which is good. It works back and forth. We call them farmers now, in case you're confused. Uh, But shepherd, pretend you're a shepherd. For some of you, that's a hard to imagine that. But just imagine for a second. You're a shepherd. You like sheep. Pretend you have 100 sheep and one sheep goes missing. And you're left with 99 sheep. Wouldn't you leave the 99 in an open field and go after the one? No. We Be honest, we would not. And I don't know how good you are at maths, but let me tell you something. 99 sheep are worth more than one sheep. I was trying to think like, is there a plural to sheep that's other than sheep in my mind? That one sheep is worth less than 99 sheep. Again, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but if you took 99 sheep to the market and sold them, you would get more money than if you just took one sheep to the market and sold it, right? One sheep is not worth 99 sheep. Does that make sense? I'm glad. So the story already doesn't make sense. Like he says, wouldn't you go after one? No, because first of all, sheep have got to be one of the dumbest animals on the face of the planet. That sheep doesn't know what it's doing. I hope the sheep walks off a cliff. What do I care? I've still got 99 sheep. I'm gonna stay with the 99 sheep. He says, wouldn't you go after that one sheep? And when you find that sheep, wouldn't you put that sheep around your neck, that stinky sheep around your neck, And wouldn't you walk all the way back? And when you got back, wouldn't you call all your friends and all your neighbours over to celebrate with you and spend probably more money than the sheep is worth on a party celebrating the fact that this sheep had come home? No. I don't know about you. Maybe you're more... Uh, you know, spiritual than me, but I would not. That doesn't even make any sense. The, the sheep walked away by itself. It's just a sheep. I wouldn't even put it around my neck. They're filthy, stinky, dirty animals just on my neck, carried home, invited friends and spend more money on a party for this one sheep that shouldn't have walked away in the first place. And then he says this. He says, I tell you the truth, there is more rejoicing in heaven over the one that comes home than the 99 righteous right? So you go, okay, Jesus, trying to make it spiritual. All right, I'm starting to get it. But still, try again. I actually think there's three stories because I think the Pharisees were standing there like, that actually doesn't make sense. Because nobody would do that. A farmer wouldn't do that. And I've asked farmers, they're like, no, we lose one sheep. Who cares? We don't even know if we've lost one sheep. (laughs) Like you find out you lose one sheep when you find it in the paddock and you're like, oh, we lost a sheep. Like they don't care, right? And so they're like, try again. So then he says this. He goes, okay, well, if that didn't work, let me help explain it more. Pretend you're a woman. For some of you, that's easier than others. But pretend you're a woman. Pretend you have 10 coins, rich. 10 coins. Pretend one coin goes missing. Wouldn't you turn up your entire house looking for that one coin? Wouldn't you destroy your whole house, flip up the couches, flip up the beds, move everything out the way, looking for that one coin? 
Now, depending on how cheap you are, maybe you would, but I don't think, like, it's just one coin. It's like, okay, I've got nine coins, one coin. I don't really want to mess my house. But then it says, when you find that coin, wouldn't you invite your neighbours and your friends over for a party? Which means you're probably going to spend the other nine coins on a party for this one coin that you're celebrating that, what's the coin's business? The coin got lost by itself. The coin can fend for itself. It's fine. But it's like, destroy your house. Put it back together. Spend the other nine coins and hold up this one coin like, I have found this one coin. No, you wouldn't. I can picture the Pharisees standing there like, try again. That actually doesn't make any sense, Jesus. You might as well try again. And so then he says, you know, at the end, he brings it spiritual and he says, you know, I tell you the truth, there is more celebrating in heaven over the one who come, who is lost and then is found. Then they say, okay, cool. Then he says, okay, fine. If that one doesn't float your boat, pretend you're a father and you've got two sons and one of your sons asks for his inheritance early. So you divide up, which by the way, was probably an insult to the father. So you, by the way, so then you divide up your land and you do as your son says and you give him his inheritance. And then your son takes that inheritance and he goes and he squanders it on wild living. Everything that you've worked for, everything that you've built up to give your life, to give your sons an inheritance, to give your sons, you know, a life when you pass away, to set them up well. You've worked your whole life really, really hard. And then your son comes and says, give me my inheritance. And you're like, fine, son, here's your inheritance. And then he goes and wastes it and squanders it on the Bible says, wild living. And he finds himself feeding pigs, wishing that he could eat the food that the pigs were eating because he was starving. I can imagine the people like, finally, a story that makes sense. A son who rips off his dad, goes and squanders the money, and now he's getting what he deserves, hungry in a pig pen. And guess what? He deserves it because of what he's done. He ripped off his dad. He wasted his money. He was unwise with his money. Well, that's the bed you've made, son. You can lie in it. Then the Bible says that the son comes to his senses in the pig pen. And as he comes to his senses in the pig pen, he goes, you know what? I'm here starving, but I know my father who's worked really hard and done really well. Uh, He has hired hands that have food to spare. So they have heaps of food and they have a place to live and all that kind of stuff. So I know what I'll do. I'll go back to my father and I will beg him, beg him to take me back as a hired hand and I'll be a servant in his house the rest of the days of my life until I pay back everything that I owe him and then at least I'll have a warm bed and some food. And it's like, yeah, good, finally, a story that makes sense. He's gonna go back and he's gonna pay his father back because he needs to pay his father back. Because he did it, and that would make sense. His father could show love and grace and compassion to him and say, yes, I'll take you back as a hired hand, but you'll work off every cent that you do. That makes sense, right? So I imagine the Pharisees are like, yeah, cool, okay, that makes sense, great. And so then the son's coming back home, and it's like, finally, I want to see this guy beg for his place back, beg to be a hired hand again. I hope the father just, you know, gives it to him, gives him a little clip over the ears or something like that. Like, I hope he gets what he deserves and the father comes. And so he says, he comes and the Bible says, and Jesus says, and as the father sees his son from a distance, the father begins to run towards him. And it's like, great, the father is really angry. He's about to flying knee him right through the fence or tell him to go away, all that kind of stuff. And he runs towards him and he goes, fine, this son's finally gonna get it. And when he gets to the son, 
Jesus says he embraces his son. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Then the Bible, uh, then Jesus said that the son falls on his knees and begins to beg his father, would you just take me back to be a hired hand? And the father bends down, lifts his son up and says, no son of mine will be a hired hand. Gets a robe, puts it around him, gets a ring, puts it on his finger, tells the hired hands to go and kill the fattened calf because his son was now lost, but now his son is found. And then in true fashion, they throw a party. for the lost son who has now returned. And then we're introduced to a character that's not seen in the other two parables. And we know him as the older brother. In Hebrew uh, storytelling, there's always three elements or three characters or three whatevers. And if you're not the first one, and you're not the second one, then you are definitely the third one. That was the point that the teacher was trying to make. And then so all of a sudden there is, okay, this, 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 this. And now in the last stories, there's this, this. And here is the third character. So the Pharisees are like, okay, the older brother, that's us. Let's see what the older brother does. The older brother comes and from a long way off, he sees that there's a party. He says, what's happening? Servant says to him, well, your brother has returned and your dad put the robe around him and killed the fattened calf. And now they're throwing a party because he's back home. And the older brother rightfully says, what the heck, man? That is unfair. He says, that's unfair. And he stays out and he's grumpy and he's muttering to himself outside. And the father comes to see him and says, what's wrong? Your brother's come home. He was lost and now he's found. We should be celebrating. And he says, what are you talking about? I have always been here. I have always been worked hard. I've been working hard for you. I've been doing all of this stuff and I, you have never killed a fattened calf for me. I can't even get a goat for, for myself to have a party for myself, but you kill the fattened calf, the best animal in our paddock. You kill it to celebrate him and he has done nothing. What is the older brother saying? I have done more than him, but somehow he has more than me. That doesn't make sense. Why? Because the older brother is operating from the value system that all of humanity operates from. That if we do more, we should have more and we're worth more. But here is this younger brother who does nothing, who does the opposite. And all of a sudden, he gets more than the older brother has ever had. And it doesn't make sense. And so you can imagine the Pharisees saying, Okay, so we're supposed to celebrate. And then he says again, the father says to the son, you should celebrate that your brother was once lost, but now he is found. Now he is found. Why do these stories make no sense to us when we think about them logically? It's because of the value system that we operate in. But my takeaway number one is that God has a different value system to the value system that we put on each other as humanity. God's value system is very different. Why? And why do we have an issue with these people getting that value or the sheep, the coin and the son having that value? Why do we have an issue? We have an issue because the sheep had done nothing to be worth that value. It wandered off. It had done nothing. The coin had done nothing to be worth being that valuable. And the son does the opposite. The opposite 
of being worth that much. He's not worth the fattened calf. He's not worth being welcomed home. He's not worth, they do nothing to earn that value and that worth. The sheep only has value because the shepherd gives it that value. The coin only has value because the woman gives it that value. And the son only has value because the father gave him that value. And welcome to the value system of God, given, not earned. Given, not earned. You see, sometimes when we read this scripture, we focus so much on the sheep, the coin and the son. But this story is just as much about a shepherd, a woman and a father as it is about a sheep, a coin and a son. Because the value system of God works like this. It is given, not earned. You have value this morning, not because of what you do, not because of what you've done and not because of what you have, but you have value this morning because the shepherd gives you value, because the woman gives you value, because the father gives you that value. How much are you worth? Everything. Why? Because the creator of the universe, your creator, gave up everything for you. He paid for you with what? With his entire life. How much are you worth? You're worth the creator of the universe, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords paying with his entire life for you. Not because of what you've done and not because of what you have, but simply because of who you are, a son and a daughter of his, his precious creation. The Bible says his masterpiece. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you've always struggled with, do I have value? Do I have worth? I'm here to tell you, yes, you do have value and yes, you do have worth. And that has nothing to do with what you do or what you have and everything to do with who he is. Who he is. Because news flash, all of this is about him. Like I said, we focus so much on the sheep, the coin and the son, but really the parable is much about the shepherd, the woman and the father as it is about those other things because newsflash, it's all about him. You have value, not in and of yourself, but you have value because he gives you value this morning. And so takeaway number one is simply this. God has given you value. And so if you feel like you don't have any value, I'm here to tell you that you have value. And so we should treat ourselves accordingly and we should treat other people the same. That they have value not because of what they do or not because of what they have, but simply because God, they are made in the image of God and God has created them and died for them and given them that value. Sound familiar? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and strength and love others as you love yourself. It is the value system of God. And so when you understand that he gives you value, you should treat yourself accordingly and then treat others the same way. You should love others as you love yourself. It's the value system of God. So you have value this morning. That's the first takeaway from the parable this morning, that they are worth value. You, they, are worth, they are valuable because he says that they are valuable. Second takeaway is this. The shepherd, the woman, and the father, I don't know if you caught this, but they represent God. Right? So that's not anyone here. You're not the shepherd. You're not the woman. You're not the father. You are 
one of the other two, which we'll talk about in a second. But it's about that. And so do you know what this parable tells us about the shepherd, the woman, and the father? Do you know what this parable tells us about the God of the universe? That lost people matter to him. Lost people matter to him. And so the question is, and the challenge is this morning, do lost people matter to you? Because if lost people don't matter to you, the challenge is, are we serving the God of the Bible? Because it's very clear that the God of the Bible, that lost people matter to Him. They matter to Him. And so if they matter to God who we serve, who is our Master, who is our Lord, who is our King, then they should matter to us. Which the challenge is then, that each and every one of us probably need to get some urgency around reaching lost people. Do you know the disciples in the Bible believed that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime? So they had a sense of urgency. Do you know actually if you read all throughout history, Christian history and church history, there is not one generation on the earth that did not believe that Christ was coming back in their lifetime. It's the same with our generation. Same with the generations that have come. We've all believed at some point as Christians that Christ was gonna come back in our lifetime. And it injected into us a sense of urgency. It injected into the disciples a sense of urgency around lost people. And so you need to understand that as a Christian, as one who has a desire to serve God with all your heart, you need to understand that the God that we serve, lost people matter to Him. They matter to Him. And so we see three types of lost people in the parable. Number one, we see someone who unknowingly is walking away from Jesus. And as the sake of identification, that may be you this morning. And maybe the Holy Spirit's starting to reveal something in your heart that you, the sheep unknowingly just walks away from the shepherd. And so there are people out there who are unknowingly just walking away from the shepherd. The coin doesn't know that it's lost. And so there are people out there and maybe people even in this room where, and the Holy Spirit's working on your heart, but they don't even know that they're lost. And then thirdly, with the son, there are people out there who are actively walking away from Jesus. And do you know what? They all matter to God. For as he says, there is more celebration in heaven over the one that comes home than the 99 who don't need repentance. And so they all matter to God. And so takeaway number two is that lost people matter to God. And the reason I put it forth to you today is for you to go and think about that today. Do lost people matter to me? Having kids changed a lot of things about our life, particularly our sleep and our free time and our energy. Um, But it also changed the way that I understood the Scriptures, particularly when it talks about a father and their children. And so get this, right? If we are all the children of God and some of us are lost, whether unknowingly or we don't even know we're lost or whether we're actively walking away, but they're all the children of God. Being a father now, I can understand that if my daughter was lost, And for whatever reason, I could not get to them, but I had made a way for people to get to them. 
And I asked the people who were supposedly my friends to get to my daughter because she is lost and she needs to come home. And my friends sat there and did nothing. I can't speak on God's behalf, but for me as a father, I would be frustrated at my friends. That they did not move. That there was not a sense of urgency. That they were too embarrassed to do something about it. In fact, I would be probably more than frustrated. I would be getting angry at my friends because that is my daughter. That is my son who is lost. I've done all the heavy lifting. I've made a way. I've paid all the bills. All you need to do is go and get them. And imagine if all they did was thank me. Oh, thanks for paying the bills to go and get your daughter. Thanks for doing this to go and get this. Thanks for doing that. Thanks for doing that. Oh, thanks for making a way. Thanks for making a way. Eventually, I would say, I appreciate the thanks, and I can't speak on behalf of God, but it's an interesting thought. Uh, eventually, I would say, hey, I, I appreciate the thanks, but I need you. The biggest thanks that you could ever give me is to go and get my daughter and my son and bring them home. And so it is a challenging thought, but it's a thought worth putting forward to you today that lost people matter to God and we need a sense of urgency around it. Cobes, you can come back. I'm almost done. You know why this strikes a chord with me is because I can identify with this parable in the sense that I think the, sh- the, the sheep was me. That's my story. Unknowingly walking further and further away from God had nothing to do with him, didn't want to know him, didn't want anything, didn't even comprehend, kind of just thought it was fairy tales made up. But in a moment, he found me. He found me. And I can remember as a 17-year-old sitting there and he found me. And I had a very supernatural encounter with God that changed the rest of my life. It felt like he picked me up put me on his shoulders and carried me home. I wasn't searching for him because I didn't even know that he exists. I thought it was not real, but in a moment he found me. The crazy thing is you could be sitting here out of some religious duty thinking this morning that you're here to worship God and give God honour. And maybe you are in your heart of hearts and it's great. Or maybe you're simply here because he's been looking for you. Maybe we're all here because he found us. Maybe we're all here because He made a way for each and every one of us so that we would not perish anymore, but we could come home with Him where we rightfully belong. That's my story. It may be your story as well. Lost people matter. You know, as I look back, an integral part of my story was one guy, a 19-year-old chaplain, who simply continued relentlessly to show me that I had worth even when I pushed away and rejected him and all that kind of stuff. He kept relentlessly just showing me that I had worth. And so when it came to a time and a moment, I went, you know what? If this thing's true, it's probably too important for me not to at least see if it's real or not. And in a moment, my life was changed forever. Felt like he wrapped me up, put me on his shoulders and carried me home. 
And so the power of Jesus still has power to transform today. And so you might've been a Christian a very long time. I wanna tell you that the power of Jesus still has power to transform today. Point number three is a pretty simple one. Um, But don't be the older brother. (laughs) That's a simple one. Don't be him. In the story, that's not who you wanna be. Don't be the older brother. Don't be the older brother who's counting the value of people of what they have and what they have done, but simply give people value because Christ has given them value. Don't be the older brother. Don't be the older brother that when people come to know Jesus and come in with all their mess, that you get upset. And it's really easy for all of us to go, I'm not the older brother. I would love people to come in and get to know Jesus and it'll be awesome. And that's great. And it all sounds great until one day you rock up at church and one of them is sitting in your seat that you always sit in. And even though you're trying to be Christian, you're like, that's my seat. That's where I sit. And why are these people sitting in my seat? Listen, you can choose comfort or you can choose the commission. You can't choose both. Because they don't, because the commission by its very nature, the great commission of Christ, which is to go into all the world and make disciples, that is, uh, that position of that is uncomfortable. And so you can choose to have church in comfort or you can choose to fulfil the great commission that is on God's heart that He put to each and every one of us. And so don't be the older brother. When messy people come in or people working through their stuff come in, don't be the older brother who stands back and goes, oh, this person should work out their stuff and blah, blah, blah. Be the father who embraces. Be the servants who party. Partying is pretty easy. Be the servants who celebrate. We are all creatures of habit. We like what we know. And so in the unknowns of God, sometimes we can struggle. When people start getting reached for Jesus and coming in, that can be unknown and we can struggle. And so we've got to deal with our ability to uh, love people and operate through the mess of people's lives to continue to reach and love people. We're creatures of habit because we like what is comfortable. But fear often disguises itself as comfort. So you might say, well, I'm just comfortable living this way. Well, you actually might just be in fear of man living that way because you don't want to break the mold or go out or do something. Don't be the older brother. Last point is... Simply this, that it comes from, I preached on this parable at a country church and a shepherd, otherwise known as a father, came up to me afterwards, a father, a farmer, came up to me afterwards and said, hey, do you know like where it says that the shepherd puts him on the shoulders and carries him home? He says, you know, that's because in, in the olden days, if there was a sheep that kept wandering off, the shepherd would come and would put the sheep on his shoulders because then he, every now and then he'd reach down and he would feed it. And he'd carry the sheep and he would continue to feed the sheep himself until the the sheep or the lamb became so dependent on the shepherd that when he put the lamb back down, the the sheep would no longer wander off, but it would stay right by the shepherd's side. And so my last point is this. Maybe you feel in and of yourself that you keep wandering away 
and then coming back. And why did I do this? I keep going away and coming back and having faith and then not having faith and up and down and up and down and up and down. Maybe that is because, just maybe that is because you have not become dependent on the shepherd. And so my challenge to you this morning through the parable is, how dependent are you on the shepherd? How dependent are you on Jesus? For Hannah made some incredible points up here in her communion. And one of them was the surrender of our hearts to the shepherd, to Jesus. For the Bible says that if you try and keep your life, you will lose it. But those who lose it for myself, for, for my sake, will find it. The Bible, we know that Jesus has come to set us free. Do you know freedom comes from the other side of surrender? Because that's where we can be content in all circumstances, in all situations, when we finally surrender. Think about it. We're trying to work it out, do everything ourselves, make it all happen. We get tired. We start doing all this stuff. We're trying to make everything happen and everything go. Imagine if you could just go, you know what? I surrender it all. The outcome is not on me, Jesus. It's on you. And I surrender my entire life to you. I'm getting rid of my desires and my options. I'm surrendering my life to you. You know, it's funny because it's almost counterintuitive, but when we get to that sake where we're like 100% Jesus, my life is surrendered to you. The crazy thing is, that's where freedom comes. Because imagine, he's, the Bible always says, don't worry, don't worry, just pray, don't worry, just pray. And you're like, well, that's easy. But that comes from a position of total surrender. Because if your life is totally surrendered to God, it's like, well, it's in your hands, Jesus. And I'm gonna have faith and I'm gonna believe and I'm gonna ask for things. But ultimately, it's in your hands, Jesus. And so I don't need to strive, I don't need to fight. I don't, the only thing I have to strive to do is to be closer to you. Only thing I have to try to do is just to grow my relationship to you and keep surrendering my life to you and all that kind of stuff. And the rest is in your hands. When you get to that place of total surrender, that's where freedom is. Because it's like, well, Jesus, it's on you. I trust you. I trust you. Not my will anymore, but your will be done in my life. Whether in lack, whether in plenty, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So the last point is simply surrender your life to Jesus. Surrender your life to Jesus. Come on, can we stand in this place today as we pray and close? Four points, four things to think about, four things to ponder this week. If there was one in particular that you felt a stirring in your spirit towards, then I would challenge you to go and ponder that in your quiet time, in your prayer time with Jesus this week and let Him speak to you, open your ears and your eyes to what He wants to do. And so there are multiple different people in this room at multiple different places on their journey with Christ. And If you are here and you don't know Jesus or you haven't surrendered your life to Him or maybe this is your first time in church, I just want to say this, that you have value and Jesus made a way 
That value comes from your creator. And Jesus made a way for you to be back into your original purpose, which is relationship with your creator. And it's freely available to you today. It's freely available to you today. If you're a Christian and you feel like for whatever reason you haven't been living like a Christian, well, grace is freely available to you today. God is the Father who comes as His sons and daughters come back and embraces. He doesn't stand at a distance. He doesn't push you back. He doesn't make you work through all of your junk and stuff to come back to Him. He simply embraces you this morning. And so my challenge or my, I guess, the thing I'm going to put towards you guys is come back to Jesus this morning. His arms are open wide. His arms are open wide. And if you're here and you love Jesus and your life is surrendered to Him, then I, can I just encourage you, where's your urgency around the lost? And maybe in your quiet time this week, it's time to ask God to spark that passion inside of you again and to give you the boldness to believe. Come on, let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you so much for who you are. We give you all the glory and all the praise and all the honour. Jesus, we simply ask, that you would do what only you can do, transform hearts and minds in this place. Jesus, for anyone whose heart is open to you for the first time, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and that you would encounter them. Lord, as you are working, Holy Spirit, in the hearts of people, Lord God, would you seal things that were said in their hearts, Jesus. Anything of me, Lord God, I pray would fall to the ground, but anything that's of you would have pierced the hearts of everybody listening. Jesus, we love you, we worship you, we give you all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name. Amen. Church, just for a moment, could we sing this song just as we leave today? Just to say, just to start afresh. Sometimes we all need a fresh start to the start of the week. And to sing the words and just to say, Jesus, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. My life is surrendered to you and I want to worship you with everything that I have. Come on, church. Why don't we just sing this this morning together as we close? Thanks for listening through this message recorded live at Resound Church in Melbourne. You can find out more about who we are online, including our service times and live streams. Have a great week and we'll catch you next time.